Hello and welcome. My name is Kirsten Walsh and you're listening to Podcasts on Process. This series takes a peek into the creative process of artists and tries to pull out the tools of their work. And not the tools you might find lying around a studio or office necessarily, not the pens, paintbrushes, and sketchbooks, but the active methods for making rooted in person-to-person interactions and reflections. Podcasts on Process is supported by Baltimore-based organization The Contemporary, and the series is also supported by the Curatorial Practice MFA program at the Maryland Institute College of Art. So whether you found this podcast through SoundCloud or on the website, I would love your feedback. And after you listen, please go to podcastsonprocess.com and leave me a note. Or if you find yourself inspired by a topic or episode, you can use the hashtag podcastsonprocess. We'll be pulling from social media platforms to help continue the conversation online. I would love to hear what you have to say. So the more contributions, the better. And I had decided as part of my time at Harvard that I would joyfully demonstrate that you could show people work before it's finished and before it's perfect. The voice you just heard is Liz Lerman. She's the spark and inspiration for this project. And in this inaugural series, we'll be looking at her work and creative practice. You're going to hear a lot from me over the course of the next six episodes, but you're also going to hear a lot from Liz. Liz is a Baltimore-based choreographer, facilitator, writer, researcher, educator. In fact, her titles go on and on. She was also a 2002 MacArthur Genius Grant Fellow. If you're not familiar with the Genius Grant, take a look at the recent fellows list. These are brilliant minds that have shown originality in both what they make and how they make it. Liz is also a published author, and her books include Hiking the Horizontal and The Critical Response Process, a method for getting useful feedback on anything you make, from dance to dessert. I've been fortunate enough in the last year to spend a lot of time with Liz and her colleagues and team. She gathers and holds closely an insanely talented group of people. And many of those team members you'll hear from when we start diving deeper into Liz's toolkit over the course of the series. So to back up just a little bit, let's get some history behind this artist. In Liz's early career, she showed audiences the power of dance for older people. And since then, she's been challenging the assumption that only professionally trained dancers can create beautiful dances. And she's shown that audiences want to see movement from all kinds of bodies, professionally trained or not. Looking back at the videos and pictures of Liz's past projects to try to understand the arc of her career, I've been struck by three projects in particular. First, the Hallelujah Project. The performance was held in cities across the country, and at the core of the work was the question, what are we in praise of? So in Maine, for example, Liz and her dance company, along with the residents of a small fishing town, greeted the sunrise, greeted dawn together with movement. Then there's Ferocious Beauty Genome.
This was a collaborative piece that connected dancers with scientists and scientists with dancers all around genetic research. And it was based off of her time at Wesleyan University. Here's a clip asking, what if scientists were choreographers? So, uh, so you could imagine that the dancers would initially form themselves into these secondary structures. In the shuffle, in the genome shuffle, the evolutionary genome shuffle, you can have an inversion, right? 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 And then there's the one that's the most near and dear to my heart, the recent run and set of performances of Healing Wars. Healing Wars is big, conceptually and physically. At its core, the work pairs stories and histories of the American Civil War with contemporary stories from the conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. In the last year, Healing Wars has shown at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., at the Center for the Arts at Virginia Tech, at the University of Iowa, and at Montclair University. This piece is really special to me because it's how I got to know Liz and her whole team. I was a fly on the wall for a lot of the past year's development of Healing Wars. One of Liz's strongest personal assets is her abilities as a listener and conversationalist. We've had numerous discussions in the last year, but none of them were officially recorded. So I sat down with Liz at her home office in the end of February, early March, for what would end up being four hours worth of interview. Liz's office is in her home in Baltimore, although she'll be the first to admit that she's on the road just as much as she's at home. It's a small studio office space with light blue walls that are just absolutely covered in art. Most of the art is related to dance, women, or social justice issues, but all of it is very personal to Liz. Do you know the artist Nicole Paul? Here's Liz describing one of her newer acquisitions. On one wall is the printed transfer of a child's dress, and then on the opposite wall is an embroidered white infant's dress framed behind glass. My grandmother had put that, that's my mom's of it, and I couldn't, I'm so happy that I have it. And that was your mother's? That was my, my, my mother's, yeah, I framed it. I think my grandmother had her in there, or it might have been my grandmother's. Do I you know on what occasion she would have worn it? No, because we didn't do christening, so yeah. I have no idea what my grandmother That's had. the first thing that came to mind. But that yeah, was, my yeah, grandmother had such incredible taste. She was really, really embroidered something. Yeah, I, well, that's you know they were on the west coast, so it's oh, some kind yeah. of ancient Chinese thing, you know, that she must have found. The clip you just heard of Liz describing her or artwork in her studio is an example of what Liz does so naturally. She makes connections, historical connections like those in Healing Wars, or connections between what may appear to be completely disparate disciplines. Here's Liz at Wesleyan University. The very first time I came to Wesleyan and went to a science luncheon where I was supposed to talk about the possibility of making ferocious beauty genome, 
And I sat in there with about 30 scientists and the conversation was very high, very high level conversation. And I thought about it later and I thought, oh, you know, I'm just a mirror. They probably are talking to each other almost the way they always talk to each other. But because I was there and they were responding to me, it was reflecting off me back to them in a way that they didn't usually hear or see themselves. And I went away saying, it doesn't matter whatever we make. When excellence comes to excellence and is sparked, there's just nothing like that. Liz's kernels of wisdom are difficult to keep up with at times. She's in a constant internal process of reflecting and making, reflecting and making. She said at one point in one of our initial interviews, I'll consider any idea, just give me 48 hours to think about it. Liz is a dancer and choreographer, so she thinks with the body and she teaches with movement. Here's another section from that same Wesleyan video to explain that. I think you'll enjoy this. Liz calls it embodied learning or embodied knowledge. That's very much, I think, at the heart of a good collaboration is your capacity to step back and then one's capacity to step forward. And we've, that's what this has been. Before I had the chance to meet Liz Lerman in person, I listened to her recorded lecture from her time at Simon Fraser University. She spoke there in October of 2013 which was great. It gave me a wonderful framework because we connected for the first time just a few months after that. She opens the lecture with an anecdote about rattling around. I really like Nobel Week, which we just finished, right, when they give out the prizes. Um, I, partly I like it because um, I like to listen to what they say. You know, they give them like 10 seconds to talk. And uh, they've, of course, done that work that they got the prize for, for, you know, 50 years or something. And I'm always interested in how people come to the essence of what they feel their life has been. And one year I was driving, and I don't even know who the person was on the radio, but they had just gotten the Nobel Prize. And uh, he said uh, he got it um, for rattling around in other people's universes, which I thought was kind of interesting. And um, not that I'm going to get a Nobel Prize, <laughs> but I do rattle around a lot in other people's universes. When we sat down for our official interviews, I had to get her on the record for what rattling around meant to her in more detail. So Liz explained that anecdote with another story. I got interested in the defense budget and didn't know anything about it and wanted to understand it and therefore I had to go talk to people who did know mm -hmm. or whether it was you know, my mother's death and feeling like I have to find some old people, I'll go find them, I don't know where they are. What, you know, whatever, what, there, there were different reasons to push me but once I started moving out into the world with the things that I knew from dance, I was so surprised by both what I had to offer because of what I knew, not just from dance, but from art, from making. And I was so surprised that, um, well, the image that keeps coming to me these days is my father used to love to sharpen his knives before he cooked. He was the cook. 
and we had a knife sharpener in the, you know, it's one of those, like a, a round saber kind of thing. And he would just love to stand in the kitchen and go, you know, and make the thing sharp. And that's how I felt. I felt like being in other people's world sharpened me, sharpened my understanding, sharpened the things that I was interested in doing, and then eventually made me more bold. I mean, that took a while, but it, it made me more bold when I went home, back into home being at that time pretty straightforward dance worlds that also adjusted and changed over time but I, I think initially it was just the, the the need and then the realization that oh wait a minute we actually know something we actually have things that are of value and I guess an underlying point why aren't we sharing them more might have been a, a little bit of a, a, of a, a little underlying nudge to the whole idea So how does Liz sharpen her skills? She'll say by turning discomfort into curiosity. And then she supports that curiosity with a whole arsenal of tools, four of which I pulled out for further investigation. And again, those four tools, and therefore the next four episodes are collaboration, the question who gets to make, documentation, and then finally, critique. So why these four in particular? Well. That's a question I hope I'll answer over the course of the series, but it's also for personal reasons. I have my own curiosities. These ideas have been creeping into my practice as an emerging curator, so I naturally wanted to know how more people are implementing them to help me determine where they go in my toolbox. In the next episode, we'll explore one of the most fundamental aspects of Liz Lerman's practice, collaboration. You'll hear from David Renoso, the scenic and costume designer on Healing Wars, and then from George Sissel, the director of my graduate program, Micah's MFA in Curatorial Practice. In the spirit of these podcasts, I'll have a simple prompt for you each episode. I promise nothing terribly grand, but we're going to call them creative challenges. You'll hear the prompt here, and then it'll be posted online at the website, podcastsonprocess.com. And then they'll also be posted to the Facebook page. So take a moment to consider them and respond. And if you're bold and want to hear your own voice as a part of the series, please record your response. The website will have more instructions on how you can do this. This episode's creative challenge is to consider this question. What are the tools of your creative practice? And if you don't consider yourself an artist outright, what is your creative practice? What outlets do you have that are creative? And then what are the tools of that practice? I asked the same question to a few of my classmates and colleagues, so maybe you'll find some inspiration in their responses. So uh, my name is Jen Melvin, I am 37 years old, and part of who I am right now is a graduate student at MICA in the Curatorial Practice Program. I always identify first with being a person that appreciates art in many forms, whether that be film, music, um, you know, visual art, performance, etc. 
in terms of um, my creative practice, I imagine myself sort of as a DJ, maybe a mixtaper, mixtape maker of um, art, other people's art. And um, so I would sort of identify my creative process as a person that acts as a megaphone or a mediator or perhaps a bridge between audience and artists and the work that they create. The tools of that practice really vary. I think the first thing that comes to mind is people. I think being with people, talking with people, whether that be artists or the audience in general, is super helpful to my practice. Uh, okay, so I'm Ashley DeHoyas, and my title as of right now is a 2016 Masters of Fine Arts Spiritual Practice Candidate. Uh, so my creative practice is something that I'm figuring out right now. I'm kind of somewhere between artist and curator, uh, which is a great place to be because I see things artistically, but then I also see things on the other end of logistics, like logistically. Definitely, like I'm a visual, like I have a visual memory, so snapshots, like mm. when I see things, I mentally take pictures. I'm like, oh, that's a something that I could see happening. My name is Jennifer Gray. My name is Jennifer Pearl Gray, <laughs> <laughs> and I am in the curatorial practice program at the Maryland Institute College of Art, and I am also an Urban Arts Leadership Fellow. My dreams, and like when I say my dreams, I literally mean when I go to sleep and wake up and I remember something that has caught my attention or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I pull from those things. My dreams tell me things. And so I take that inspiration and a cute notebook. I have this thing with notebooks that <laughs> um, I just have to buy them if they're cute. Hello, my name is Kelly Johnson. Uh, I am a curator and writer, currently a student at MICA in the Curatorial Practice Program. I think my creative practice is kind of observing things for a long time and then kind of pulling out little connections that I see between all the different things that I'm observing all at once. Um, yeah, that's how I see my creative practice and particularly my curate, like before, like I think everything is research and like I'm always kind of like, I'm always looking basically. It's one of my favorite quotes of yours, everything yes, is research. Yes, everything is research, like going somewhere different and looking. Sometimes being in the same spot and observing can get old and you know, going outside your perspective. I think that is a huge, So my name is Marnie Benny, and I'm a curator. Um, and uh, what is my creative practice? Mm. I think that runs a, in a few different ways. Um, I think I think first and foremost, being a curator. Um, but I take that as a context of uh, I take that more in the context of bringing people together and collaboration. So that's sort of my creative practice, is doing research, uh, finding people, finding what people are interested in, um, and finding um, certain personalities that I think would work well together, and um, bringing those people together, and usually it's under a theme, but then sort of being very open to the outcome of that um, and what happens from that. Uh, I think the tool, so the tools of my creative practice are 
it's very important for me to hike and be in nature and spend some time there for reflection and thinking um, and getting out of my head a little bit. I'm thinking a little bit beyond being in nature takes me sort of out of my own context and uh, lets me see that I'm a very small piece in a very big, big, huge uh, globe and, and solar system and universe and everything like that. This episode and the whole series would not be possible without the incredible team around me. So I have to say thank you to just a few folks. First, thank you to the faculty of curatorial practice, to my extraordinary mentors, and to my support team from the contemporary. The music you'll hear in this series was composed and recorded by the remarkable Ruby Fulton and the band Nudie Suits. And thank you to Estelle Klein and Sean Tubbs, my audio engineer magicians. A big thank you goes out to my classmates and my beautiful friends in curatorial practice, and to my husband, my unwavering volunteer and MacGyver on all of this. And last but not least, thank you to Liz Lerman, the stunning artist who graciously opened up her life and process to me.